Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Again, Veritas family, and once again, let us go into the breach. This is Joe Resnell with the front line, and today we have a very special guest, Sister Alicia Torres. She's actually from Hartford, Connecticut, but now she's living in Chicago, the great city of. We're going to be talking about the National Eucharistic Revival. For those who may not know who Sister Alicia is, I'm going to give you a quick bio. She is a member of the Franciscans of the Eucharist. She works at the Mission of Our Lady of the Angels on Chicago's West Side and serves as a religious teacher in the inner city. Her writings have appeared in First Things, Catholic News Services, and The Living City. Sister, welcome to the front line. Thanks for having me, Joe. It's great to be here. Sister, could you please begin with the prayer? Sure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for gathering us today for this opportunity to share the good news. We ask you to help us to keep our eyes fixed on your beloved Son, Jesus, especially his true presence in the Eucharist, that we would live from this great source and summit of our faith and share his love and mercy with our world. And we make this prayer in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. In the name Amen. of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's funny, before the conversation, Sister and I were talking, and we have something um, in common. Um, I'm a lay associate with the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal, and uh, the Bishop of Chicago, one of the bishops of Chicago, is. did he find, found the order of the Franciscans of the Eucharist, which you, which you belong to, Sister? Yes, yeah, so Bishop Lombardo is one of the original members of the CFRs out in New York. And then he was invited to come to Chicago in 2005 by the late Cardinal George. And then in 2010, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he discerned the Lord was calling up or inspiring another Franciscan order. So our community, the Franciscans of the Eucharist of Chicago. So we were canonically or officially established in the church in 2010 and last couple years ago uh, he was appointed an auxiliary bishop here in Chicago by Pope Francis so we never planned on him becoming a bishop but but that has happened too in our history that's awesome tell us a little bit about yourself I mean like I said you uh you're from Connecticut but then you made your way uh to Chicago and here you are you're a sister um how did that happen how did you hear God's call Sure. Yeah. So my mom grew up in Connecticut, my dad in uh, Puerto Rico, and then I was actually born over in Portugal on a small island. And we lived military lifestyle, you know, until I was about 16. My parents kind of settled down in Massachusetts. I went to a really solid Catholic school, daily mass all through high school. And then I went out to Loyola University, Chicago here in the city. um, And I decided, you know, to continue to practice my Catholic faith went to daily mass often in those early years of college. Um, But it was really my third year of college that I noticed, you know, it just really hit my heart how unhappy so many people on my campus seemed to be. And for me, you know, I was a first generation college student. um, So this was just an incredible opportunity. 
I was also very involved in the pro-life movement from my middle school years. So I was involved in that in college too. I was a pretty, you know, fierce, passionate young lady uh, for the faith and for for the the sanctity of human life. Um, And so it made me distressed that it didn't seem people were happy. So a group of friends and I started to pray. I prayed a rosary um, on campus publicly because at that time as well, there was a group of students who were really advocating strongly for um, the culture of death on campus. They were giving out condoms at the gates of our campus as the Catholic university. And we felt that that was really wrong. Like people have dignity and they should have the opportunity to discover the beauty of who they are, the gift of their sexuality, um, how marriage is such a sacred thing that we want to we want to really reverence. And so from those public rosary novenas, uh, we discerned to start an underground newspaper to kind of share our opinion about how important the faith was. Um, so again, I was a pretty zealous young lady, but it was in those months um, of, my, of my junior year that I really started to sense the Lord calling me to religious life. And I was directly connected to taking time at Lent to pray through that total consecration to Jesus through Mary. So really asking Mary to be my mother in the spiritual realm and wanting that and asking her to bring me to Christ, her beloved son. And it was in that time where I was really taking personal prayer in a more serious way, really for the first time, praying regularly on my own, not at mass, that I started to sense this call to religious life. And I think it was really strengthened in Eucharistic adoration, it, it really wasn't until I started going to adoration of my own volition that I really started to discover um, that I could have a personal relationship with Jesus. You know, before it was very intellectual, it was very, this is the right thing to do. I'm Catholic, I believe in this. My head is one over, but my heart wasn't totally tuned in. And so it were those hours that I chose to spend in adoration where my start hearted, my heart started to open to Jesus. And then the experience of mass started to transform. And I realized, you know, I'm not here to make my life what I want it to be because that's not going to lead to what I really desire, which is this peace and joy that I was seeking. And when I started following what I thought was God's plan for me, I started to discover this peace and joy that I didn't know was possible. You know, it's funny. Another thing we have in common, I went to a Jesuit college. I went to University of Scranton. Um, so I, I, to be honest, I know a lot of people. Steve Lee, who runs the network, went to Boston College. There's a lot of common threads, you know, for people who went to Jesuit schools. But something you said struck me as you were saying it. I mean, Scranton was a very, you know, the religious aspect of the college was there, clearly. I mean, um, I used to go to mass. To be honest, I wasn't really practicing the way I should have actually at all. But I did go to mass. I'm surprised lightning didn't come through the church and strike me dead. But at the same time, I did go. Um, You see that on campuses sometimes, I think. But it's amazing, though, it was through that experience. um, I met some wonderful people. And because I made bad decisions, um, when I came home, I went to confession. I changed my whole life Mm -hmm. to be completely truthful with you. I'm 52 now. um, And basically the trajectory has continued. I have five children. um, I'm happily married. I have a good prayer life and my life has grown as a result of, you know, that experience definitely had its impact, even though to be truthful with you, I didn't take up. I mean, you, we were a little different. I mean, you were 
you know, religious in college. I just went to church. Um, but, but my bad choices led to the reality of who Jesus is. Praise God. That's awesome. See, he works in big and little ways. He's always pursuing us and he's so patient. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. And God knows I have a long way to go, but I'm trying. And I, I want I'm glad that we're going to be talking about uh, the National Eucharistic Revival. We're here with Alicia Torres. Um, this is such an important thing because I believe that it is the Eucharist that changes hearts. I go, my wife and I, there's um, a perpetual adoration chapel near our home, mm-hmm. and it has like a code. So you can go in at when you know whenever it works for you. Because we have five young children, I go at five a.m. on Saturday morning. She goes at five thirty before the kids go. Half hour. That's all I could do. Um, but we do it. And when I was single, I was the driver for the missionaries of charity in Manhattan for seven years, literally. Um, every Saturday, I drove them all over the place. I've been to India. I know the order intimately, and I would pray with them once a week for an hour in front of the Eucharist. I always say uh, that was my novitiate. It prepared <laughs> me for marriage. I always knew I would get married. I didn't get married till I was 43. So it was a later, you know, a lot of people get married when they're 23. Didn't happen for me. But it was that time that God formed my heart. And I think it's so important that people spend that time, sister, because I'll be honest with you. You know, a lot of people have ideas. I have ideas. That's why the show started about how you can touch people. But ultimately, it's Christ that touches people. And th- and I always say this, if people just sat in front of Jesus in the Eucharist and said this, even if they didn't believe in him, just said, Jesus, I don't believe in you there, but I want to help me. You will in time. What are your thoughts on that? Because I think that's the greatest tool of evangelization, Christ himself in the Blessed Sacrament. Right. Well, I mean, we know the Eucharist is Jesus, right? And this is true and abiding presence until the end of time. So how do we kind of cultivate an environment where people are open to taking that step? And it's those steps that lead toward that moment where they're in his presence and our own witness, like our joy, our story told in a way that invites people in, Um, you know, and remembering like how merciful God has been to us. I think also extending that same mercy, because I think a lot of people feel like the things that have happened in my life, the choices I've made or the things that have happened to me, I just can't, God's not for me. Like I can't be forgiven. I can't be healed. My life is too much of a mess. And I think that if we can find healthy and holy ways to share, well, my life has been and remains a mess. (laughs) The Lord loves me and I love him. And my life is different. And that's what it is. It's like, just like sometimes, I mean, there's got to be days, Joe, where you're like, I don't really feel the love for my wife right now, right? But you choose to love her. And that's the same in our relationship with God. Sometimes we don't feel the love. You know, we're like, where is the love? Well, it's there. We just don't feel it. That's when we make a choice. And I think many of us are not at that point of conviction. And I think that that's why this revival is so critical and well-timed is we're in a crisis of faith and devotion and Jesus is the only response to that. Oh, I agree with you 100%. Tell us about the revival itself. Um, I know you guys have like a strategic plan, three-year plan. Tell us a little bit about it and how can people get involved? Absolutely. Yeah, the National Eucharistic Revival was truly an inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Currently, Bishop Andrew Cousins is the chairman of the Committee for Evangelization and Catechesis, which is the um, the group at the USCCB, the Bishops' Conference, that's promoting and spearheading the revival in addition to the whole conference. Right before Bishop Cousins, Bishop Robert Barron 
who's so well known for the word on fire work that he has done, was the chairman and his outgoing recommendation, because during his time, he was really helping highlight the disaffiliation, how many people were leaving the church. His recommendation was, let's do Eucharistic revival. Bishop Cousins came into that role. And of course, the pandemic hit soon thereafter. So there have been there has been a desire of the bishops for a number of years here to have a Eucharistic revival, but it's been a little waylaid because of the pandemic. Thanks be to God, we're in a position now where this can move forward. So in addition to responding to that crisis statistic that you know many engaged Catholics are aware of to some degree, the Pew study of 2019 stating 70% of Catholics don't believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, but some really helpful nuancing to that statistic, I think, opens a very big pathway of hope that that stat says 70%, but in that 70%, the majority of those people actually believe the church teaches something different about the Eucharist than we actually believe. Majority of that 70% believes that the Catholic church teaches the Eucharist is only a symbol. So we have a lot of opportunity here. There are a minority of people are outright rejectors. We don't have a majority of rejectors of church teaching. The majority of people who don't believe actually don't know or understand the teaching. So there's a lot of hope, I think, and opportunity. And that's why I'm so excited about the Eucharistic Revival. So we started the revival. It kicked off this past Corpus Christi this past June 2022. Um, many dioceses around the country hosted diocesan-level Eucharistic processions in their streets with special masses and public adoration. Um, some dioceses, like Indianapolis, they had uh, an opportunity for service right after the procession. They bagged food for local food pantry, uh, food pantries. So connecting that Eucharistic faith with how do we then live our lives, and that's kind of like the overarching movement of the revival is having a moment or multiple moments where we can have people experience healing in the presence of our Lord, experience conversion in the presence of our Lord, experience formation. What is it that we really believe? And then experience a deepening unity as the body of Christ so that we can go out on mission, which has been always the church's call. Like as baptized people, our baptismal vocation is to be on the missionary journey with Christ. Like we share in his mission, which is the salvation of souls. We don't usually use that phrase these days, but that is the purpose of the church, to get people to heaven. And so the Eucharistic revival is this refocusing on the first thing, which is the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and then helping from that point of intersection, like that's where time and eternity intersect, the Eucharist, Jesus, in the Mass, right, where we relive in an unbloody way the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, the glory of the resurrection, that Paschal mystery that comes present to us at every mass. Um, and it's so hard to tap into that profound, mysterious, but real reality. And then we have Jesus comes to us, wants to nourish us in Eucharistic communion, and then send us out on this mission. Every time there's this ebb and flow going to the mass and going from the mass, flowing to and from, um, this Eucharistic lifestyle that the Lord wants for us to live. <clears throat> and that's at the heart of this revival is this renewal and faith and devotion so that the church can respond to the great needs of our time, but in, in very intimate communion with Jesus in the Eucharist. Sister, you said so much there, and we could break it down. Uh, for those who may have just joined us, we're Sister Alicia Torres. We're with her. We're talking about the National Eucharistic Revival. Um, 
It's so good to see your young person. It's a new order and you pray. Do you guys go to adoration every day? We do. Huge. And so many orders are doing that. You know, a lot of times people focus on what's going on in the church. All the There's some craziness, but I'll be truthful with you. I see you and it gives me hope. I see a lot of orders like that that have basically sprung up from the ground, literally, and pray in front of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. That is the answer. But, you know, I'll tell you the truth. Something else you said that I want to touch on. You know, we're ambassadors to Christ, and it's our joy, and it's also radically living a Catholic life in the public square. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Like I said, I'm a son of a barber. I'm not a rich guy. I have five kids. I'm married to a Haitian-American woman. I have five kids under eight. My life is nuts. You want to talk about, like, nuts? It's nuts. Five kids in a small house. Um, but that's radical. You choosing to be a sister, that's radical. You had choices. You went to college. You could do anything you want. That's radical. We have to say yes. And there's a big difference to, to intellectually understanding who Jesus is. Anyone could read a book, but knowing him and actually following him, like he said, follow me. That's what discipleship means. Follow me. And that means to live a sacrificial life. But in order to do that, and you corrected me rightfully when we were talking about this interview beforehand, you have to trust somebody. You have to trust them. And basically, for there to be trust, there must be love. Talk about that, because I think that's the, the key. Right. You know, I was reflecting on the National Eucharistic Revival and the vision, the hope of this revival, and it's already happening, is to have a movement of Catholics that have been healed, converted, formed and unified to be sent out on the mission of Christ, on the salvation of souls. And in order for any of that to happen, there has to be love, there has to be an encounter. And I think that the place where many of us struggle is that for there to be trust, there has to be vulnerability. And I think many people have had, perhaps every person has had some sort of experience in their life where it causes them to set some sort of boundary or some sort of guard over their heart because they're afraid of getting hurt. Many people have been hurt, whether it was in their family, um, in high school, their first job, people have been abused. There's a lot of hurt out there, a lot of hurt. Um, and if we don't know that Jesus is the source of hope and healing, then the next steps are going to be really hard and intimacy with him. Because if I'm nervous about being intimate with a person, if I'm nervous about being vulnerable with another human being, that's going to transfer to my relationship with the Lord. You know, so we have to cultivate a space in our church where people can feel safe to take that next step of vulnerability with the Lord. You know, and, and that doesn't mean we need to get into people's personal lives. But that means we need to express that gospel joy, that gospel peace. We need to welcome people in an authentic way, not this like cheesy way or not this, what's your envelope number? Have you donated lately? Like those things don't work and they turn people off. We have the greatest treasure in the world, Jesus Christ truly present. Um, and you know, Joe, the bishops are really stressing the mass here with this revival. A lot of people have no clue what the mass is all about. I sincerely believe if our Catholics understood the mass, we wouldn't be building churches fast enough to fit the people who would want to be there. You know, right now, many dioceses 
are closing churches, we would, we'd be at a total loss if the Holy Spirit had some sort of like explosion moment where every Catholic's heart was turned toward the Eucharist. We'd be holding mass in fields. We couldn't fit them in the churches. So I think that <clears throat> to know that we are loved, we have to know that Christ died for us and he conquered sin and death. Right? That's what happened. But knowing that in my head is different than actually opening my heart to receive the grace and the mercy. So there's this crisis of vulnerability. And I think that that's where the face of Christ sometimes has to shine through us first. You know, many people don't even want to go into a Catholic church or the sex abuse scandal has turned lots of Catholics off to engaging in life of the church, right? And so if I'm a disciple, if I'm a believer, how am I present to others that are far from Jesus in a way that helps open their hearts and turn their hearts just a little bit more and a little bit more back to the Lord. I agree. I mean, I think of uh, Father Joseph Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict XVI. He gave a radio address in 1969. He said basically, as the world, just paraphrasing some of the highlights of it, as the world gets darker, the light of the church will shine brighter. And I always say in our social media shows, um, it's not working. Like all these ideas that have been like basically pushed forward uh, from the 80s to the 90s to now, um, the ideas of like the hookup culture, the ideas that you live with your girlfriend before you get married, all of these ideas, and we can go on and on and on, they don't work. They don't bear fruit. I'm old enough to know, and I've seen the arc of it. People who have invested in that, they simply don't work. And that's part of the reason why I follow Jesus. I have found through experience, that my way doesn't work. And I have learned that Jesus's way does. Mm -hmm. And I trust his way and the church's way infinitely more than my own. Even if it doesn't make sense, like, like intellectually, or you write it on paper where people say, Joe, how are you going to send five kids to school? My answer is, I don't know, but I trust God. I trust him. And he's never let me down. For instance, there's that crisis right now with uh, formula. I have a, a one-year-old, and she has to get special formula because it upsets her stomach. We've never not had it. People send it to us, never. And my wife will be like, we got two weeks left. I don't even worry. I completely trust that we will have it, and we have, because we do things God's way. But in order to get there, you have to have an encounter, sister. I agree with you. That's It's easy to say but it's hard to do. And I want to talk about the hurt aspect. Um, hurt, we all have hurts. That's kind of kind of how I went to church because I was a mess, to be honest with you. Um, I received the first step in the confessional, me. And if people don't want to make that step, because that's a big step, because to be honest with you, that's, you know, you know, a lot of people who maybe didn't grow up Catholic or have a good experience may not want to do that. But I think sitting in front of the Eucharist isn't as threatening a step. You could say to someone, listen, you don't even have to be Catholic to sit in front of the Eucharist. It's peace. You feel it. It's tangible. And as time goes on, that church, when Christ is on the altar, you feel it. I mean, I do, you know, like that. It, and I never leave the same like from walking in, is that a possible way to ease people into the water? I think it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many ways, Joe. And for some people, just that invitation, I mean, I think for 
that encounter in adoration, just that peaceful space where the Lord is present for a non-believer or perhaps someone that's not really sure what they believe. I think to have someone enter into that space, like the Lord can of his own volition, draw somebody there and that's happened. Right. But I think more often what will happen is someone like yourself, um, a sophomore on a college campus, who's a practicing Catholic, she'll share with a friend who's struggling. You know, for me, I go to adoration once a week and it just really helps me. Like I experience peace. I really believe the Lord is there. Do you want to try it? That kind of thing is going to be powerful. That personal invitation from a person that knows the other person, right? I think another pathway that I've seen here at the mission of Our Lady of the Angels, which kind of gets to part of the bishop's vision for the revival is that, you know, honestly, Joe, people are attracted to God in three ways the way of truth, the way of the goodness, or the way of beauty, right? People are drawn to God in one of those three ways. I found here in Chicago at Our Lady of the Angels, you know, we, we live on the West Side, it's a rough neighborhood, there's gang violence, drug activity, there's shootings out my window. Most every day I hear the gunfire. Um, and yet hundreds and hundreds of people come here, hundreds and hundreds of people. And what I've seen over time is especially with young people, they're very drawn to doing something good for the other person, right? They want to serve. Whatever they believe about God often is immaterial. They want to make a gift of themselves. And we've seen many young people come here to serve the poor. And through the serving of the poor, they're like, well, you know, there's an adoration chapel there. Everybody's doing adoration. Maybe I'll just pop in. Or, hey, I heard the sisters have mass in the morning before service, maybe I'll go to mass, you know? And so there's that openness because they see the witness of the church loving the poor and they realize there's no way these people could do this with their own human potential and capacity. There must be something more to this. And they'll slowly discover that something more is Jesus in the Eucharist at mass in adoration. Um, so there's many paths to getting people into the presence of our Lord. Um, and I found, especially with young people, the pathway of the good service to those in need can lead them back to Christ. I agree. I mean, uh, I could, again, speak from my own experience working with the missionaries of charity. Mother would say, um, when you serve the poor, you are serving Jesus. You're mm -hmm. actually meeting him. And that's true. I have worked with the sisters in India, and they have quite a volunteer network there of a lot of young people, how it greatly impacts their life. It impacted mine. It's a way to have someone who is like, I would say, a person of goodwill. You do something like for somebody who can't pay you back. And I'm not even talking about money. I'm talking about like you give of yourself. That's an authentic encounter with Jesus as in Jesus himself. Um, and that changes people completely. And I actually think um, with regard to what you're talking about, you know, accompaniment, um, the idea that you go through the door with somebody, their door, and they come out the door, your door, a different door. And, the, and I've seen this with the missionaries of charity, hardened people. And I mean, like, went to jail, like hardened, they, they're loved. Like, and that doesn't mean that I affirm your bad behavior, but I love you anyway. You meet them where they are. You love them. You maintain your standard, but you still love them. And ultimately people respond to that. And that sparks, I think, 
a change. Sister, we have a minute and then we'll go to the break. Your response to that. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you, Joe. And that's like the loving gaze of the father, right? And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So Jesus reveals God, the father to us. And just like in the parable of the prodigal son, the father's arms are always open. He's waiting always. Absolutely. Um, we are here with Sister Alicia Torres. She is a sister of the Franciscans of the Eucharist in the great city of Chicago. We're talking about the National Eucharistic Revival. We are going to take, actually, we have like another 30 seconds. We have, we could just talk a little bit more about that and then we'll just kick into the break. But talking about what you're saying too, and I've said, I've seen this. I think sometimes people, when they talk about accompaniment, go in the wrong direction. Like that doesn't mean that like, if you're doing something bad, I'm going to be cool with it. But but it doesn't mean I just throw you away. I, and I think that's the wrong interpretation. I, like, that's one thing the missionaries of charity always did. I never saw them, like, affirm someone in their bad behavior. But at the same time, they loved them. They, they fed them. With that, we're going to go to the break, and we're going to come back with Sister Alicia, and we're going to be talking about the National Eucharistic Revival. Please stay tuned. Where there's Catholic radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith, families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and His Church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back, Veritas family, to the front line with Joe Resnell. We're here with Alicia Torres, and she is discussing the National Eucharistic Revival. Talk about accompaniment, sister. I think it's it's a misunderstood uh, phrase that gets thrown around. And talk about it, how it's utilized effectively. Right. Well, I think you know all we have to do, Joe, uh, very simply, is to look at the witness and example of Jesus in his own life. Right. So Jesus looked around, chose 12 of the most unlikely candidates to be basically the ones to help spread the good news and establish his church, right? So he establishes his church on the rock of St. Peter. Everyone knows from the gospel that Peter denied him <laughs> three times. So people wonder like, wow, like if that guy can make it and be the first pope, maybe there's hope for me. But what did Jesus do? You know, he spent three years living with them, walking with them, teaching them, reminding them, drawing them to take time away to pray, being by their side as they served and cared for others, sending them out on little missions and then calling them back and probably having conversations about what was that like when you were out there serving, healing, preaching, etc. So Jesus gives us the blueprint for what it means to accompany. And when we accompany, our mission is the same one as Jesus's mission. It's to help people enter into a gospel lifestyle, right? And what's the very first words we hear, I believe, at the beginning of Mark's gospel is repent and believe. Like, is that what John the Baptist says, right? Like, repent and believe. And that's what the gospel is all about, is turning away from what I thought was right what I want to do and turning towards Jesus's plan for my life, which is full of hope, peace, and joy. And you know, it's hard, it's hard to do that 
if, if I hadn't seen it happen. And that's where the witness comes in. A hundred percent. I think of the rosary, uh, the joyful mysteries. What did Mary do? She receives Jesus in the annunciation. What does she then do in the visitation? She goes out. What does she do? It's a simple act. She takes care of her cousin. It's simple. You see, that's, I, I think sometimes we make it bigger than it has to be. Like it's simple, a simple gesture. She receives something and she gives something away herself. That's what I think we have to keep in mind. We can't give what we don't have. Like if you ask me for a million dollars, I don't have it. I can't give you what I don't have, but what I can give you is myself. And that's where I think prayer and the sacraments come in. You have to go to the fountain. We hear this in the mass, the source and summit of all holiness. It's said in every mass. That's Christ. We receive him in a state of grace. From there, we give him away. But we can't do it. And you talked about that, particularly in your work. And I, to be honest, I've never been to the west side of Chicago. I've been to the south side. I went to a baseball game there. I took the train one day, and that was, wasn't was a picnic either. But at the same time, I can imagine what you're, you know, what you're dealing with. You know, I go up to the Bronx. I've been into some pretty crazy places with the MC's um, projects and like. It's You can't do that without God. You can't live a life. You can't be chased without God. You can't do that. And God is real. And that's why the Eucharist, which is called viaticum, food for the journey, you receive him and then you give him away. But if you don't receive, you're not going to give anything because you don't have nothing to give, sister. <laughs> yeah. You know what That's I mean? Like, I think sometimes <laughs> we think differently, like, like, as, as far as like, you know, like how we're going to go about this under it all is prayer. Like, you know, they say like contemplatives are like a volcano under a bed of snow. Like you look at the snow, you don't see anything, but under it is like a volcano or like an iceberg. You only see the top of it the action, but under it, the iceberg is deep. We have to live prayerful lives. Now we have different vocations. I'm a married man. I can't spend four hours a day, you know, praying, but I can do certain things. I pray in the morning. I get up before my kids, you know, get up. I read the Magnificat. I pray the rosary with my wife. They see that, you know, every night. I go to church every day when I can. I go to confession. I go to adoration for a half hour. This is what I can do in my vocation, but I can't have this show and, and talk about God unless I'm filling up. And, and you can't do what you do unless you fill up. And I think we, sometimes we go about it wrong. We try to do the stuff and and we don't we we put, oh, I don't have time for that. Well, you don't have time for that. The other stuff's not going to happen. Talk about that. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of uh, see, Pope St. John Paul II was quoted to say something to the effect of, you know, in order to do, we must first be, be in the presence of our Lord in the Eucharist. Um, and when you think about it, Joe, I don't think it's a secret that our entire culture is experiencing identity crisis. You know, like I decide who I am, I create my identity. And, you know, there's all sorts of sociological and political arguments that are all over that. So it's kind of like a hotbed. But ultimately, our identity comes from God, right? Like we're made in the image and likeness of God, male and female, period, bottom line. And if I don't allow myself to be in the presence of God, if I don't allow myself to take a risk on that relationship, I'm never going to be grounded. 
you know, I'm never going to do the things that are going to bring me peace and joy. And as a matter of fact, I'll probably be spinning my wheels doing far more than I really need to be doing. You know, I think about this Eucharistic revival and I'm so encouraged by the amount of discernment and prayerful reflection that the bishops have given to this. And we've truly discerned this is the call of the Holy Spirit to our church here in the United States to have this revival, these three years set aside to refocus the church on the real presence of Jesus and the Holy Eucharist. And this first year that we're in right now is really focused on leadership, bishops, clergy, people that lead the church in dioceses. And the first step of the revival is my own heart. You know, how can I allow the Lord to renew and heal my own heart? And then, like we've already talked about, I can go out and invite others into that dynamic. Um, but there's so much there. But who I am is what's primary. You know, I spent a number of months very sick when I was in the novitiate. I hit my head. I could do barely anything. I was, uh, you know, it was some degree of a concussion illness. It was, it was really hard. Um and I know that the Lord doesn't want us to suffer and doesn't cause those kinds of things to happen. But through that experience, you know, I had been this, this person who all the way up into that point, and I still struggle with this. It's still a temptation that I put my identity or I derive my identity from what I do. But it was in those months where I was very sick in pain and in bed that I discovered for the first time in my heart that my identity is, is who I am in Christ. You know, and even if I never left that bed, and I never did stuff again, that my life had inherent worth and value because I was loved by God and because I could love him and others in my suffering and through the prayer that I could pray, even in those very, very dark months. And so I think perhaps sometimes as a church, we spin our wheels doing many things, but I hope that this Eucharistic revival inspires in many people, especially our leaders, um, a dynamic of pausing and prayerfully discerning, is this really what we should be doing? Do we need to start this new program or whatever it might be? Or is the Lord asking us to do something else? And the prayer has to be at the heart of it. You know, you probably know the church teaches for us as consecrated uh, religious men and women, the primary purpose of our life is to be men and women of prayer and to help bring hope to the church that all of us can have a relationship with the Lord in prayer. And Paul says, pray always without ceasing. What is prayer? It's a relationship. Like you are not with your wife right now, Joe. She's somewhere else. She's not in that studio. She's not in front of that microphone, but you're still married to your wife. The relationship still exists. So when we're not at mass, when we're not sitting before the sacrament of in adoration, when we're not in our room praying quietly, the relationship still exists. But if I don't set that time aside to nurture that relationship, just like if you don't set that side of time, time aside to nurture your relationship with your wife, then it starts to kind of unravel. So we need to be intentional about that prayer time that we set aside so that that relationship we know and we believe and trust is always enduring and experience it like, whoa, that guy just cut me off, but I'm not going to scream and swear at him because I sense God's presence with me. I ask for the grace to forgive him and just keep driving instead of causing a scene. You know, that's, that's the difference. It's very subtle. Um, but it's real and it can happen if we want it. You say it's real because it is. And and you and and that's what people have to see. People have to see like you're different. Like you just live differently. And I could be honest with you, sister. I've met all types of people in my life, all types of people. And I've lived 
not always this way. I mean, I work um, in banking. I've met wealthy people. I've traveled. I've met party people. People who are close to God are the happiest people. That is a fact. That's not like, and I've met wealthy people like in my job. That does not mean you're going to be happy. And it's easy to say, but people have to see that when you are operating on all cylinders, we'll talk about all cylinders from, say, a regular person in the world. You're Catholic. You go to confession frequently. You go to church with your family on Sunday. It takes 45 minutes. A confession takes five minutes. You go frequently. You pray the rosary. Start out with a decade. Takes three minutes a decade, four minutes, you know. A whole rosary, 15, 20 minutes, you're connected. You will have peace. You will be happy. You will have joy. You will not, like you said, get wrapped up in craziness. And frankly, you will see. You see, this is the problem. So many well-intentioned people, sister, you said that they don't know who they are. They simply don't. They don't see. And being smart doesn't have anything to do with it. Some of the smartest people are some of the most blind. They don't see. And it's almost like, like an analogy from St. Paul. He was blind for three days. St. Paul was a smart guy, you know, but then all of a sudden he saw <laughs> I actually think, and I'd like you to explore this idea. I think people are afraid to see. People are afraid. You talk about like knowing who they are to sit in front of Christ in silence. Silence scares people because they don't want to know. And that's why I think everyone's so busy. It, it's a distraction. You know what I'm saying? And, and there lies the invitation for peace, but it's that fear, sister. People live like they lie to themselves. Let's, let's be honest. I mean, I'll call it the way, you know, the way it is. They don't live in reality. Like, you know, like my dad would always say, and he was a simple person. He was a barber. Joe, straight ahead, straight ahead. You got to look life in the face. People don't want to do that, sister. They don't. What are your thoughts? Yeah, for sure. No, I totally, you know, I, I'm, I live out here with a bunch of Midwesterners, so they're just never as like straight up as people from New England and the East Coast. I just appreciate how you're talking about this, but I think it's true. I think we're afraid of silence. We're afraid of so many things. Uh, we are afraid of reality. Absolutely. I mean, and even in our prayer, Joe, if we want to be honest, a lot of very good intended people keep their prayer really busy too. Let me pray another novena and another, you know, devotional and like this and that and the other thing and the rosary. I love the rosary. I pray the rosary every day. But if I don't allow there to be silent space in my prayer life, I'm just talking, 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 but I'm not listening to the Lord. I'm not letting him show things to me. You know, the other thing too, Joe, that I notice among many people, very good Catholics as well, is that a lot of people are looking for whether it's consciously or, or subconsciously, um, an emotional experience of God. You know, we're looking for pleasure needs to be met, some sort of high to be found. I um, mean, this is why people are addicted to sex and drugs and, you know, go from one concert to big event to another. Like people are seeking a thrill, something that's kind of like going to get them going on the inside and touch a place in them that feels empty. But we know those things don't provide a lasting satisfaction. And, you know, the hard line about a relationship with Christ is that 
part of it entails picking up the cross and following him, you know, and the prosperity gospel is not in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just because you're a good Christian doesn't mean the world is going to be all sunshine and roses for you. Um, you know, and I think that we have to get that on the table, um, walking with the Lord, turning our life towards him, spending in time in prayer, making it a point to get to mass and deepen our understanding of persecution isn't going to make all our troubles go away. They're probably still going to be there, but what's going to change is me and on the inside, a deep place in my heart. I might not feel it, but I'm going to know I have peace. I might not feel it, but I'm going to know I have joy because peace and joy are not a feeling. They are the presence of the Holy Spirit active and alive in me. That's a fruit of my relationship with Christ. And I think that that message needs to get out there. It's great to have a powerful experience at mass, to have really great music. Like there's lots of things that we need to attend to as a church to help people enter into worship, to people help people enter into Eucharistic adoration. But at the end of the day, God is not here to entertain us. And that's part of our problem. Like, oh, mass is boring. I don't get anything out of it. Are you kidding me? You get the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But then if I don't believe that or think it's just a symbol, well, who cares? You know, we live in an entertainment era. I mean, even as a school teacher, like, you know, these kids come and they, they want to be entertained because they're entertained everywhere else. Well, that's not the purpose of education. I'm not here to, to be your circus show. You know what I mean? Oh, I get it. I get it. Um, and so that's kind of one of the elephants in our living room is that the purpose of life is not to be entertained. The purpose of life is to love and to be loved. Love is not always entertaining, but love is patient and kind. It bears with one another and it gives of itself to the point of death as Christ shows us on the cross that what comes after death is new life. And that's what people are really seeking, right? Love costs, sister. And I think that's where, you know, what people don't want to go, you know, sadly, I think our American culture lives on the surface. Um, love costs. That's why we contracept. Um, that's why, to be honest with you, you know, as a church, we don't make ourselves vulnerable. When you make yourself vulnerable, it costs you. It costs you. And I have found, again, this is me in my life, when you make yourself vulnerable for God, he, he, you always will bear fruit. God lives in the space of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. When you open yourself up, like, you know, use an example, simple example, you go to confession and the sin that's most embarrassing, you say first, you make it a point, I'm going to say this first, and I don't want to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. And I'm going to bear myself completely. You leave and God enters you. Like, also, when you open yourself up in what you do, like you live on the west side of Chicago, that's not exactly, you know, uh, living on the what's it called the miracle mile in Chicago's big, big difference, you're opening yourself up. That's where the fruit is. You see, we don't want to do that. We also want to be invited to the barbecue sister. This is me, you know, people don't like because when you start living that way, you could be a little odd. To, to the average bear. And we don't want to go there because we want to be accepted. Um, but Jesus didn't do that. He could have went along. He didn't. You see, we got we, we, we got to make ourselves vulnerable as Catholics. That's where the fruit is. That's from the priests. That's from the bishops. That's to me. And that begins in the family. Because, you know, a lot of times people, 
I, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I remember one time I was complaining to a CFR sister about some of the nonsense that's going on in the church, and she immediately corrected me. She said, you know, vocations begin in the family. And you're not going to get good priests and good sisters a lot of times unless they learn about Jesus in the family. That means being open to life. That means having God as the center of your house. Now, it happens. People, you know, go into religious life. But that begins in the family. We don't want to do it because that costs. That costs. And people don't want to go there, sister. But I'll tell you what, when you do go there, there's the fruit. There's the fruit. It just doesn't look good. They're not going to put you on the cover of People magazine. You know, you're not going to get invited to the fancy party or you can't go to the party for that matter because you got too many kids. You don't have a fancy car. You, you know, like you're going to know what it means to live without. But there's Jesus. There he is. You got the pearl. Talk about that because we're not willing to go there, sister. We're not. I mean, from clergy to regular Catholics on the street. We want to just have our, our like sanitized lives, you know, like, no, Jesus didn't have a sanitized life. Neither did Joseph, neither did Mary. Joseph, get up, go to Egypt. What? What? What are you kidding? I don't speak Egyptian. Get up, go. What did he say? Okay. What did the apostles say? They're in a boat. Throw it over the other side. Listen, you're a carpenter. I'm a fisherman. I know what I'm doing. No, they said, all right. Well, that's what we got to do. We don't want to do it. Talk about the need for that because there's the fruit. It's on the other side of the boat, even though it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, what What you're saying makes me think of Jesus and his own vulnerability, right? So we read in Philippians that um, basically he exchanges everything of his divinity to condescend to come down among us. So we know Jesus is fully God and fully man. The church teaches that we believe that, right? But he takes on a human nature, the second person of the Trinity, to experience our human experience alongside us and everything but sin, right? And we, we read that in scripture, he experienced everything that the human person experiences, but without sin. So every suffering, every challenge. So Jesus made himself vulnerable in his humanity as an infant in the womb of his mother and the arms of his mother needing to be cared for, to be fed, to be clean, to be changed. And then we see Jesus utterly vulnerable, stripped naked on the cross. It doesn't get any worse than that in first century Jewish world, right? That was the pits. And then that's not enough for him. He rises from the dead, destroys sin and death. And then he says, okay, let me make myself vulnerable for all of eternity. What I did at the Last Supper, that was real. That bread and wine, that becomes my body and blood, soul and divinity. And I'm going to condescend myself for all eternity by coming and transforming that bread in the hands of that priest and every Catholic mass. He says those words that I asked him to say in memory of me, this is my body, that bread, that little piece of bread that could be crushed, burned, destroyed, becomes Jesus. This is my blood. Those drops of wine become Jesus, utterly vulnerable. You want to talk about vulnerability. I can't see how you could become more vulnerable than becoming food and drink to be consumed at the mercy of the human persons to which you entrust yourself. So 
there's a lot of hope, you know, like this is like a really great intense conversation and I appreciate it. Um, and I think ultimately, Joe, what you're talking about and what I'm talking about and what the bishops are talking about, this is a positive thing. And there's a lot of hard things that we've touched on today that are really hard to talk about, but bringing those things into the light and letting the light of Christ shine on them helps us to see this is not as insurmountable as we feel that it is. You know, I think about the revival again, these three years, first year focused on leadership, then 2023 uh, Corpus Christi, we're going to bring it into the parishes, have opportunities for people to come together in small groups, to have more adoration, to learn, to really learn, understand what is the mass all about. And then moving toward that National Eucharistic Congress in 2024 in Indianapolis, where we are inviting Catholics from all over the country to gather. We're hoping for upwards of 80,000 people to come together, not in a conference setting, but more of a festival, like a World Youth Day, to have large masses with tens of thousands of people to hear from not only well-known Catholic speakers who can help explain the teachings of the church, but from your average Catholic who's encountered Christ in the Eucharist, who's had their lives changed by that encounter who are living these beautiful lives with Jesus and for Jesus, not perfect lives, not suffer free or sacrifice free lives, but happy, holy lives because they know the Lord is with them. And then from that moment of that Congress being sent out on mission to the margins of our society to bring this good news, like the Lord is with us. He has never left. He's always been here. The Catholic church has Jesus in the Eucharist, like that's incredible. Um, and we need to have this time to prepare to be sent out to refocus our own hearts and our minds. But Jesus never asks anything of us that he didn't already do. And we can never be more vulnerable than Jesus. So we can take courage in that. Like the Lord is with us. This is not impossible. Well, you know, I I pray uh, every morning for my brother who's away from the church, and I remind myself mm -hmm. every day. Actually, I didn't this morning because uh, I was running around because I had to go to mass, but I will get to it. Uh, God could do anything. God could do anything to always remember that. Like he's touched people that should not have been touched. Like you could, we could talk about Charles de Foucault. We could talk about St. Paul. We could talk about people who should not have done what they did, but they did. And that's, I think, to never forget, you know, to dream big, to like, we, like, if it's just me, yeah, it's not going to happen, but it's not me. You know, like like we have to in the in the words of John the Baptist, I think there's some of the most important words in scripture. I must decrease and he must increase. I think about this because when I used to teach at this one parish, I used to say, you can't fill up a cup of water if it's filled to the top with milk. You have to dump it out. It's it goes against the laws of physics. But the dumping of it out as in yourself, that's hard. But we have to do it knowing when we do, Christ will be there. And that's when anything can happen. Anything. You know, again, social media, there's so much talk about the craziness. One saint changes it, sister. One saint, boom, the American church changes. The universal church changes. One person who empties themselves really takes that chance, 
radical living. That's the answer. I really believe that. I think we have to radically live for God. Forget about the barbecue. You know, like, I don't want to go to the barbecue. If you want me to go to the barbecue, you got to accept me as I am. If you don't, then I'm not going. You know, I think if we do that, sister, it could change in a minute. And not even to doubt it. To not even doubt it, because it can. I really do. Honest to God. I think we put God in a box. We think, well, you know, if we get just a thousand dollars or, oh, if we do this. No, God could change everything tomorrow. He did after his resurrection. What are your thoughts about dreaming big? We got about two minutes, sister, because I'll be honest with you. I think this National Eucharistic Revival is dreaming big. Talk about that, because I think it can happen. Yeah, no, I absolutely believe that the fruits of this revival are literally eternal, right? The potential fruits. And, you know, in order for the Lord to do all the good things he wants to do, the only thing that stands in the way of that is our cooperation. Like God can do anything. He's a miracle worker, anything, anything, but he wants our participation. You know, we read in Paul's letter, um, Paul says, I fill up in my body, what are it's lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And there's nothing lacking in the sufferings of Christ, but Jesus wants us united with him in our sufferings. He wants our participation. The Catholic church is not about sister Alicia and Jesus or Joe and Jesus. It's the body of Christ. We are a community united to Christ, our divine head. Jesus founded a church. He didn't found, you know, a club or a society, or a bunch of individuals that are connected by a cool idea, or a philosophy experience, or experiment. It's a living organism. We are the body of Christ. The more united we are to Christ in the Eucharist, the more united we are to one another. Remember, John 17, Jesus talks. He prays to his Father. He says, Father, I pray not only for these, but also for those who will believe in me because of their word, that they may all be one, right? The more united we are, the more powerful our witness is, and the more able we will be to receive that grace and love of the Lord and share that with our broken world. Amen, sister. I'll be honest with you. You're spot on. And to be honest with you, seeing someone like yourself and hearing your voice gives me a lot of hope. And there is hope. Um, I want to thank everyone at Veritas for listening to us. We are talking about the National Eucharistic Revival. Sister Alicia Torres, how could people reach out to you and get involved real quick, sister? Please, uh, yeah, check out our website, eucharisticrevival.org, eucharisticrevival.org. We have a beautiful weekly newsletter that goes out every Thursday with new content, reflections, witness stories, videos, catechetical information, inspiration, formation. Every week you can sign up for that for free right on the homepage, eucharisticrevival.org. Sister, thank you for your time today. And remember, our conversation is your conversation, and that conversation is going on everywhere. Be well. God bless.